millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Health Minister Edward Argar joins us now. Good morning to you, sir. Morning, Julia. Good morning. Um, can we talk before we uh, talk about uh, funding for hospitals and uh, the NHS to get through uh, the NHS uh, winter that bodes ahead? Can we talk about a little bit sooner than that in September? Just a few weeks away, uh, schools going back. Uh, leaked report from Public Health England on the front page of the Times today suggesting that uh, schools may well be pretty much safe for primary school pupils um, in terms of teachers and the pupils in terms of the spread of coronavirus. Uh, but older pupils, particularly as you head into a sixth form age, uh, act rather like uh, adults when it comes to spreading infection. Uh, and there would be a bigger risk for those youngsters going back into the classroom. What do you make of those risks? Well, I've seen that report as well, Julia. It's um, it's an unfinished report, as I understand it, unfinished piece of research so it's too early to say what that will conclude but what we have got um, are a number of international studies and international pieces of research from uh, Australia I think France we've seen schools going back in Norway and Denmark in all of those pieces of research I think we had um, the president of the Royal College of Pediatrics yesterday on a different media outlet talking about this and he cited a number of studies all of which at the moment appear to suggest that children and young people have lower infection rates, lower transmission rates, and um, and thankfully suffer less should they get this disease. So it's right that we wait to see what this report says. Every piece of scientific research into this is hugely important, but I think it's too early to read too much into a report that hasn't been finished yet. No, fair enough. I mean, and the, as you say, the real world examples, uh, many, many countries in Europe have seen no increase in infections, uh, no uh, no cases that have been confirmed of any uh, child infecting other children in the classroom or their teacher. Well, that's that's what the evidence appears to suggest. I mean, there are some mm. one or two schools where there are examples of small 
uh, small infection rates. But across Europe, across the world more broadly, that's the consensus or that's the weight of the evidence. So we are confident that coupled with um, the measures we are putting in place to ensure all schools reopen at the start of term, the class bubbles, the social distancing and similar, that it is safe for pupils to go back to school. And indeed, it's very important they do go back to school because we all know a day out of the classroom is a day's education lost. Well, indeed, and we know the extra long-term health costs for that. Um, well, of course, all of this does rely on a very good test and trace system, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's absolutely crucial. Um, and now we're told that uh, the government is uh, uh, going to be moving from its sort of centralised, circuit-based test and trace service where people sitting in a call centre or sitting at home are making phone calls to people, often unanswered uh, and, uh, and not followed up. And they're going to move it now back to sort of local public health and local council teams going, you know, making those phone calls themselves, knocking on doors in reality. Isn't this exactly what an awful lot of experts called for in the beginning and said, a centralised system won't work. We know what we're doing on the ground in local areas. Why don't you leave it to us? Has the government just learned its lesson a bit too late? Well, I think what, we've, what we're seeing here, Julia, is a move. We always said this system would be flexible and would adapt. And we're seeing a move here towards not the best choice of words, perhaps, but a hybrid model where we have that central capacity, that volume, which is what we got up and running 10 weeks ago. Um, 250,000 um, people who tested positive traced through that. That's 250,000 um, links and possible chains of infection broken. So that's played an important, hugely important part in doing this. But what we're doing is we're also recognising that um, the strong relationship and strong working relationships we've had throughout with local councils we can further build on that because you get the capacity and the scale of the national effort coupled with that local knowledge, that local okay. community knowledge to help reach harder to reach people. This is about both bits of the system working hand in hand to make it work. That's a great bit of spin. And I give you 10 out of 10 for that, Mr. Algar. However, uh, last Thursday, the latest figure showed only 46% of close contacts were alerted. That's a drop on the previous week, 51%, well below the 68% uh, mark, which we know is the bare minimum for doing it. The reality is you're changing it because the current system doesn't work. Don't you think that my listeners and everyone else in the country would be very understanding? Right. If you said the health secretary, the prime minister just said, look, turns out, turns out, yeah, the local authorities and public health organisations were right. And actually the centralised system doesn't really work. So we're, so we're learning lessons and we're going to do what we know will work and we're going to change. Wouldn't that be more honest? Well, I've already said, Julia, and you're right, I come on your show fairly regularly and I always try to be pretty open and straight with you about this. Um, what I think we are seeing is we have learnt from local lockdowns that as well as that volume we get from the national approach, we are also going to be using more of the local approach, which has always been there as well. It's about adapting to what works. But if you look internationally, for example, just one point on this. Um, if you look at a, a lot of other countries don't publish their statistics in the transparent way we do about how this works and how we test and trace people. But of those that do, for example, I think New York has about a 42% success rate in terms of contacting people who test positive. New Zealand, of contacting people who test positive, has a few percentage points higher than us, but that's 360 people. I come back to the fact, mm -hmm. a quarter of a million people in 10 weeks with this set up from a standing start is okay. still a significant achievement. But quite rightly, we want to use all bits of the system that we know work, and that includes continuing to build 
on that partnership with local authorities and local health authorities. OK, fair, fair enough, fair response. So let's also talk about what the Prime Minister is going to do today. Uh, back at the end of June, we had an announcement of uh, extra money, uh, £300 million to, to upgrade A&E facilities. Um, and today the Prime Minister is going to confirm the 117 trust allocations of that. What exactly is this money going to be used for? So this, um, Julia, is for a range of things to ensure that our EDs, our A&Es, have the capacity they need to meet both normal winter demand, i.e. in the context of social distancing and keeping people safe from COVID, but also any potential second peak at that time. So we spent on things like, where necessary, increasing the size of A&Es so you can get more people in socially distanced. It will it be increasing the number in some areas of cubicles so you can a, treat more people, but equally treat them again in a way that doesn't bring them into contact with other people and putting up things like at a very basic level, things like screen infe- screens and infection control measures. So it's a whole range of things. But the key here is it will increase the capacities of our A&Es so that with social distancing and infection control measures in, in place, people can still go there. We've been clear throughout the emergency departments, A&Es, are open for business. If you need to go there, you should go there and you shouldn't be afraid of going there. We want to reinforce that message by giving um, NHS Trust the money they need to further enhance those facilities for people. Okay. now as a government minister, I must also ask you about the biggest stories this week, and that is these migrant crossings. uh, Mm. 4,000 that we know of, more than 4,000 have crossed just this year. It's thought to be a much higher figure uh, across across the French Channel. Now, your colleague, the Immigration Minister Chris Philp, is meeting in Paris today with his uh, uh, French opposite number. Uh, realistically, what do we expect the French to do uh, to tackle this issue of migrants crossing the channel? Isn't it our problem? Well, I think this is a shared problem. And not only is it illegal and does it need to be stopped, but also it is incredibly dangerous for those attempting it. So in their interests as well, we need to stop this um, these channel crossings. I communicated this morning with Chris, a colleague of mine who is on his way to France to start those discussions. In truth, it isn't just our problem. It isn't just their problem. It's a shared problem. And we need to work together to find a solution to stop these crossings. And uh, it does. A lot of people would think it's rather a bit bizarre that we've got thousands of people coming in on these boats. Uh, Often we don't know know where they are, where they're from, where they're going uh, or whether or not they're indeed uh, got coronavirus, having lived in camps in France. And yet we are facing the prospect possibly later this week of countries like France, 500,000 Brits there right now on holiday being added to the quarantine list, uh, along with possibly Holland, Switzerland, Poland and Malta as well. Um, How likely is it that British holiday may could either see their holidays cancelled or face quarantine on their return? Well, I'm not going to speculate on individual countries or decisions that might be made, but we've been very clear throughout um, this pandemic and since uh, people were able to go on holiday again that there is always a risk inherent in that because if infection rates do go up in particular countries, as we saw with Spain, the government will quite rightly take swift and decisive action um, to impose quarantine to protect health and public health in this country. I'm not going to speculate on any individual countries, but as I say, people do know that while I can entirely understand how much everyone needs and wants a holiday at this time, there is always that that caution they will need to exercise, that there is always a possibility, um, as we saw with Spain, of a country, if it has that sort of spike, that we'll have to take action. Online on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Let's uh, talk now to Dr. Layla McKay, who's my first guest today. She's director at the NHS Confederation and joins us once again. Good morning, Shalayla. Morning, Julie. No, lovely to speak to you. Um, uh, there is an awful lot to talk about related very much to uh, uh, to, to kids going back to school. I mean, we, we've seen these reports about parents being worried about kids going back to school and, and the risks. And, and the Public Health England report that's been leaked to the Times suggests that older pupils, the more the closer you get to adulthood, the more likely it is your body acts as an adult's body would. And you're more likely to catch the virus and more likely to get ill with the virus and more likely uh, to, to be able to pass that virus on. Um, is it a very big concern within the NHS Confederation you're representing NHS Trust that when schools go back in September, there will be a few weeks later a big rush of people getting seriously ill and ending up in hospital. Because we haven't seen that in any other country where they've returned the kids to school. I mean, it's clearly possible, but we don't really know. Uh, at the end of the day, there's a range of things of which uh, returning to school is one that could increase the risk of transmission of coronavirus and um, move us towards towards more cases. But we, we don't exactly know. Certainly, we've seen other countries have quite a mixed view in many cases, there hasn't been a spike. In some cases, uh, just one or two children have caused quite significant uh, little outbreaks. So it's it's a question that we don't really know the answer to. And clearly, there, there needs to be some kind of balance because getting kids back to school is, of course, also 
really important. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And again, it's about the balance of risks, isn't it? I mean, that is the absolutely crucial thing there. Um, let's also talk about the balance of risk in relation to test and trace, because this is absolutely very crucial. Uh, the government is apparently looking at moving away from this sort of circo run um, in, in you know national uh, centralised system or that's, that's cost you know huge sums of money, um, getting people on the phone, calling people uh, to say to them, you know, you've, you've been, you know, you've tested positive or you're, you're, you know, you've been in contact with somebody who's tested positive and can we have your contacts, et cetera, et cetera. They've uh, tra- tracked and traced, frankly, just simply nowhere near as many people as they need to and it's getting worse rather than better. And there's now going to be a move from the uh, government to move towards cutting those centralised staff and replacing them with local local council teams, local public health teams, working youth, losing local knowledge, not just making those calls, but um, knocking on doors. Um, I mean, I have to say, this is what a lot of uh, health, local health providers and local councils have been saying they wanted all along. Would you welcome that? Yes, we would. That's absolutely right. Ever since the beginning of discussions about test and trace, we've heard from our members that the local approach is the more effective approach. People know their populations, they know their geographies, they know the so-called human geographies, and that makes it so much easier for them to target their approach and um, and find the people. And we've seen the uh, results, which have been that the local teams have had a higher amount of success in tracking people. That said, of course, uh, there was a place for this national team with uh, just the scale that we were talking here. It wasn't like local authorities had this massive amount of people in reserve ready for this. Uh, So clearly this support of having all, all, all these additional contact tracers has been really important. But now I think if we are going to make sure we do contain the virus and get the proper value from test and trace, we are actually going to have to make sure that we're tracking as many people as we possibly can. And it looks like this is a really good uh, move towards achieving that. Yeah, I mean, that's the crucial thing. And again, we know the issue is an awful lot of the times that people simply aren't answering the phone. Uh, They don't have the numbers of people, they're not reaching them, or they do have the number, they call them, it's an 0, I think it's an 0300 uh, number. People think, oh, it's just someone trying to sell me something. They don't bother answering the call. They don't leave a message. There's no number to call back on. I mean, this is such basic stuff. It sort of defies belief that it's been done on such a bad basis. Um, let's uh, let's talk. Though. I mean, we do know we we know we need that to be running very well for us to get schools safely back. But we also know there is a big concern about this talk about a second wave, about the the, you know, the the winter crisis that the NHS goes through every year, having been in crisis for much of the last year already. Uh, there is a plan now for a drive-through flu vaccination centres to be set up uh, in uh, for everybody. And I know I'm I'm 52, so I'm eligible for that as an over 50. But people are going to be asked to go get the jabs in their GP's car parks uh, as part of these preparations uh, for the NHS. I mean, is, is is that part of the answer? It's hard to say. Our primary care members have been telling us that you know they really support this increase in flu vaccination, but. It's quite the logistical challenge. This is vast numbers and there are going to have to be solutions um, that are brought in. But what they've been telling us is you really need to make sure people aren't just getting getting the jab and uh, those records are not getting back to their GPs. Everything needs to be really nicely uh, joined up for the safety of patients and to make sure that... uh, that we're all getting the the very best of care. So I think that that's the primary concern, but certainly innovation is quite possibly going to be needed. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. 
primary school pupils may well be uh, very safe from the virus and uh, keep teachers very safe because they are unlikely to pass it on or get infected. Um, not quite the same situation for secondary school pupils. Let's talk to Robert Helfer. Uh, he's chair of the Education Select Committee. He's also Tory MP for Harlow. Good morning to you. Uh, good morning. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Lots of lots of aspects of, uh, of, of education stories uh, this week. But let's let's talk about this this risk uh, of for pupils catching the virus and passing the virus on to other pupils and indeed teachers or indeed their parents uh, uh, from from school. Um, this Public Health England study it, it's not it, we 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 haven't seen it. It's not been formally published. These are this is a leak, so we can't sort of ascertain uh, how accurate it is. But it would make sense that if children are are less likely to be infectious um, as they become older and closer to adulthood, they would be more likely to be infectious. So it, it would it would tally with uh, with what would would make com- common sense. But the real life experience in other countries is that the children aren't passing this virus on. Well, uh, if you look at schools in almost every country apart from Israel, um, there have not been the cases in schools in terms of children uh, spreading coronavirus and risk to uh, teachers. And when we weigh up these things, we've also got to weigh up the risk of children and pupils and students staying at home, uh, suffering obesity, not having physical activity, not being able to socialise with their uh, friends, often having safeguarding issues at home if they've got very tough domestic situations, possibly joining county line uh, gangs, um, possibly being exposed to online harms on the internet if they're not being supervised. So you have to weigh up all those risks as a society. And and what is better um, for a four kid is to be in school uh, to be learning uh, once again. Yeah, this is the basic thing, isn't it? We're constantly told about the risk of children going to school. The reality is the risk of children not going to school. You and I have talked about this week in, week out through this. But everyone seems to ignore that aspect when they're worried about the risk of a virus. Well, the trade, trade unions, for example, have issued a 100-plus page document asking all sorts of questions, but not one of those questions says, what about the the kids? And they, it's like as if they're on the Titanic about to sink and asking for rum rations. I mean, it's uh, people have got to get together, get our school, get, work out ways that we can get our children back to school uh, safely, safely, because they've already been out of school for over uh, six months, which is a huge time in terms of children's development. Yeah, it is. And we know even if they miss out on six weeks of uh, of education over the summer holidays, we know that particularly the poorest kids, the kids who don't read a single book when they're on holidays, whose parents don't stimulate them. And again, look, may well be, yes, that they're working two jobs, they're doing their very best. But nevertheless, uh, the kids uh, from poorest homes tend to fall behind just over the summer holidays in a normal year, let alone six months off. Well, the, the attainment gap, and that's this is the Department for Education's own figures, could be as much as 75% between disadvantaged pupils Ouch. and their better off peers by the time uh, the lockdown ends and kids are back to school uh, fully. We know that over 2 million children have not been uh, learning hardly anything during the lockdown. 40%, according to an academic study, have had no contact with teachers. There's been a huge divide between those children learning and those who aren't. And often it's the left behind children who are literally left behind because uh, they've been suffering during the lockdown with very little supervision. And 
Uh, not just the unions, Ofsted, I think, need to pull their finger out and do a lot more. They've sort of been in semi-hibernation during the uh, lockdown. They should have been working with schools week by week yeah. to make sure the kids are getting adequate online learning or paper learning or whatever it may be. Yeah, I mean, whenever I talk about this, and especially when I tweet about this, I get a whole bunch of people saying, my, you know, I'm my other half's a teacher, I'm a teacher, I've been working through this full time. There's no doubt at all. There are huge numbers of teachers who've done an absolutely brilliant job through this, just as many, many other people have worked their buttocks off throughout this uh, coronavirus pandemic through the lockdown and done their very best uh, for their employers their, and uh, and their employees um, and, and whether they're teachers or, or nurses or doctors or, or, or supermarket staff or whoever even some MPs Robert Alphen <laughs> but, yeah. um, but but there's no doubt at all I mean, the, the, the evidence doesn't lie I mean you, the, the, not every teacher not every school has been doing their job we need to face up to this well, after um, all this is over, when we have the National Inquiry about coronavirus, an important part of it has to be why millions of children have not been learning, why millions of children have had no, virtually no contact with uh, teachers, why millions of children didn't have any uh, online uh, teaching, even when the online things were available and yeah. computers were given out. There has, we have to uh, find out this, what, what, why didn't Ofsted do more, for example, to work with schools, why some schools have been brilliant and some have done uh, not what they should um, in terms of online learning. All these questions have to be asked so that it never happens again. Absolutely. Uh, well, look, uh, schools are going back in September in England. They're, they're going back uh, starting today in Scotland uh, uh, over just different uh, different regions, going back at different times. This after Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland, apologised uh, for the exam grades in the, in the Scottish hires from last week. This after, uh, there was, again, the same problem we had in England where um, uh, schools predicted the grades without any exams being taken, over-predicted, what a surprise. Uh, and then uh, they've using a computer model, they've basically downgraded. Lots of pupils expected to appeal. She's apologised. Are we expecting exactly the same problems in the in England uh, come this Thursday when we get the A-level results and next Thursday with the GCSEs? Well, a few weeks ago, um, the Select Committee, which I chair, uh, published a report on this very issue. And all the surveys suggest that disadvantaged students will have their... Uh, marks downgraded. In fact, only 16% of students who go to university, one six, 16% um, have the correct grades that they get predicted uh, for. And we know that uh, over a thousand um, high achieving disadvantaged students get un uh, under predicted every yeah. year, according to the Sutton Trust. So I really worry about this, but I'm more worried about the appeal system because at the moment, if you're a Supreme Court judge, you must be, you might be able to just about navigate the appeal system. Um, but if you are an ordinary person who doesn't necessarily lobby their MPs every day and doesn't have access to lawyers and significant funds, I worry that the appeal system will not uh, be fair to uh, everyone. And we have to make sure that the appeal system is fair, but also it's got to be quick because we know that now the, the Wild West of different exam boards, they, are, they may take quite a few weeks to appeal and maybe pass the cut-off date for uh, universities. And that's unacceptable. They should be able to decide it within a couple of weeks. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.